This music screams the 90s, and while it may have started in 1991, the Jerry Springer Show went on to run for 27 years and became one of the most popular, outrageous and controversial talk shows in TV history. Featuring the trials and tribulations of many a memorable guest, episodes frequently featured family rows, fistfights on stage, cheating partners and love triangles which sometimes became love squares and even love pentagons. I'm Genevieve and my guest today is a TV icon and legend, so we're here to talk about his life. After that thing he did became unbelievably massive, please welcome the godfather of talk shows, Jerry Springer. Jerry, the man, the myth, the legend, how are you? Uh, the myth is good. <laughs> yeah. The man is old and the legend, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> happy belated birthday for a few weeks ago. How did you celebrate? Um, well, I was happy I reached 79. And, uh, oh, my wife and I, we just went out. We ha had a nice dinner. And a couple of days later, we went up near Chicago where our daughter, son-in-law, and our grandson live. And so that's become my main occupation now, just, you know, following my grandson around. Are you his bodyguard? <laughs> yeah, well, he's my bodyguard. He's six foot two and he's only 14. Wow. Yeah, I know. He's very athletic. He's great at baseball and at basketball. So, uh, you know, he may have some kind of a future there, but anyway, he's really good at it. He loves it. And so we go to his games and, uh, you know, he's the joy of my life. Oh. He's 14 going on 20. Now, some people may not be aware, but you are a Brit. Yes. British-American. Uh, you were born over here in Highgate Tube Station while it was yes. being used as a bomb shelter during the Second World War. And you grew up nearby there, which is just down the road from me. So we're practically neighbours. I remember you. <laughs> I was about 65 when you were born. I have socks your age. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually going to be 43 this year, so it's not... What? Really? Yes. So it's not that. Um, wow. I'm half Chinese. I've got very good genes. Yeah. I always say we yeah. don't die, we shrink out of existence. <laughs> um, <laughs> sadly, I noticed there's no blue plaque at Highgate Station. So I think we should start a campaign for you. It's just a lack of respect. Uh, that's what it is. I still get nervous when a train pulls into a station. <laughs> don't hit me. Don't hit me. <laughs> you um, you emigrated to New York, though, when you were five, but you have frequented these shores quite regularly, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But how much affinity do you still have with England? Oh, I'm an Anglophile. I love England. I mean, it's just that simple. It's, uh, I guess you could say it's in my blood. Although my parents weren't British. I just happened to have been born in England. Uh, my whole family is uh, were German Jews, and most of them got killed in the Holocaust. But mom and dad survived and got to England literally two and a half weeks before Hitler went into Poland to start World War II. Um, so they were apparently, according to the visa numbers, they were the I think 87th and 88th less Jews allowed out of Germany. Wow. You know, before they shut the gates. Of course, as soon as the war started, only under exceptional circumstances could a Jew get out. So they got to England where my sister and I were born during the war. And then when I was five, we came to America on the mm -hmm. Dad bought four tickets on the Queen Mary. We'll talk a little bit more about your family's experience a little bit later on. But uh, first, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. It 
it's um it's well known in the US, but probably not so much to British audiences. As the first time we saw you was when the Jerry Springer show seemingly burst out of nowhere on our screens in the 90s, but you had a pretty eventful long career up until that point. So the abridged version of your life for everyone before that thing you did is you studied political science and law at university, then went to work for Bobby Kennedy on his presidential campaign in 1968. Then you started practicing law, ran for Congress at just 25 years old, spent 10 years as a city councilman in Cincinnati, and you were its mayor by the time you were 33. And then NBC asked you if you'd anchor the news, which you did for a decade, won 10 Emmys, all before the Jerry Springer show started. You packed in a lot, didn't you? Yeah. And um, it was, you know, I'm living this very lucky life. 99% of life is luck. You know, we like to think, well, I made it on my own. No one makes it on their own. First of all, there's not a human being that ever lived that had anything to do with the decision to be born and to whom you'd be born, with what kind of health, you know, in what country, in what century, to what parents, what kind of brain you would have, what kind of health you would have. So life is a gift. And then if you're lucky enough to be in a good situation yeah, then if you work, you still need luck to get noticed. And uh, my passion was politics. In the 60s, I was very active in the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement. That still is my passion. But I always knew I would have to make a living doing something other than politics. Because in order to keep politics pure, you have to be willing sometimes to stand up for an unpopular position. I think one of the things wrong with politics is that it becomes a career for the people that are in it. And as a result, by the time they're 40, they have to win the next election to put food on the table for their family. I mean, that's their employment. And so they will say anything to get reelected. And then we start getting politicians who are intellectually dishonest. So I wanted to keep my politics pure. What I didn't know, and it may be a lesson for young people, is that the career by which I would make a living, I assumed it was going to be law because I graduated from law school and I was a lawyer. But as you just said, NBC contacted me when, when I was done with the mayoralty and said, whenever you're ready, we'd like to have you come to our station and be a political commentator and anchor our news. And I did that for 10 years. So all of a sudden, I was in something I had never thought about. I mean, we didn't even have television when I was born. That's what I mean. Careers come that you're not even thinking about at this time. And then once I was uh, pretty dominant in the ratings and doing the news, and the company that owned the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati also owned talk shows. And they owned Phil Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael, other talk show icons in, in America. But Phil was retiring. So the CEO took me out of lunch one day and said, Phil's retiring. We're going to start another talk show, and you're the host. So I was assigned to it as an employee. And then all of a sudden, the show took off. And there you got the 30 years of the Jerry Springer show. So, you know, life just happens. And I think the only advice I would have for young people is really work hard at whatever job you have. And someone will notice. It'll either be a promotion or a different company will come and say, hey, have you ever thought about doing this or come work with us? And, and all of a sudden you're going in directions and particularly now with the technology and, and the revolution there, 
there are careers that four years ago didn't even exist. Mm. So young people today, as sure as you are what you want to be, keep your mind open. You don't know what you're going to be doing 20 years from now. Yeah. Before we jump into the talk show, there are a couple of things I wanted to pick out from your earlier career that caught my eye. When you were mayor of Cincinnati, in 1977, you did a lot of great stuff like helping to get healthcare centres built in lower income neighbourhoods and recreation centres too. But I also love that you brought rock concerts to the city and had a sneaky trick of getting to meet anyone you wanted. (laughs) Yeah, I confess. You know, as you said earlier, I was what, 33 years old. So, you know, I was really into music and what most young people are. And, uh, Cincinnati at that time was a very conservative city. I mean, they never elect Democrats. I was an aberration. And one of my campaign, see, we had Riverfront Stadium. And Riverfront Stadium, which was right down on the river, the Ohio River, the southern border of Cincinnati, we had the stadium there. And that stadium was where the Cincinnati Bengals played football. But of course, they only had eight home games every year, every season. And the Cincinnati Reds played baseball. And they had uh, 82 home games every season. So those 90 days or nights were the only time that stadium, which the city owned and paid money for, taxpayers paid. It was used. Used. It was lying empty. And I'm a big fan of rock and roll. So... During my campaign, I said, if I'm elected, I'm going to bring rock and roll to Cincinnati. Well, of course, <laughs> yeah, the kids went crazy. The adults say, oh, no, it's going to be drugs. It's going to be alcohol. You know, this was, uh, this was the 1970s. And uh, miraculously, I won. And then a great cartoonist in Cincinnati for the Cincinnati Enquirer, He had this cartoon the day I got elected where I'm sitting in the mayor's chair with a gavel, bring on the stones. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sure enough, what I did, and this is, I think, what you're alluding to, is other than I was going to bring a rock concert, the first ever outdoor rock concert in Cincinnati, I was going to bring one. And then in Dornamy, you know, I was a big fan of Linda Ronstadt. So I called the agent of Linda Ronstadt and I said, We would love to give Linda Ronstadt a key to the city if she would come to Cincinnati and do our first ever outdoor concert. And she was very nice, but the dates didn't work. And she said, well, I won't be able to do those dates, but I can get you the Eagles. Ah. So (laughs) we got the Eagles, Eddie Money, and the Steve Miller Band. We had 58,000 people packed into the stadium at 11 o'clock in the evening, that was the era where everyone had the lit candles. Lighters. Yes, and <laughs> back and forth. And the Eagles called me up on stage. Just, you know, thanks for bringing rock and roll to Cincinnati. And I got to sing The Lying Eyes with them. Wow. And like an idiot, I turned to them and I said, you guys know the words? But anyway, so we did that. And then afterwards, it dawned on me, hey, I could just keep offering people keys to the city. <laughs> So I gave a key to the city to Bob Dylan, Dolly Parton, Linda Ronstadt, Emmy Lou Harris. I mean, on and on, like 30 different celebrities 
that I wanted to meet. And they'd come to the city. I'd give them a key. Eventually, I ran out of keys, so I started giving out the combination. <laughs> 25 to the right, 14 to the left. And yeah, so that's, uh, that's what you do when you're 33 years old. You did some other interesting things during your political career. Could you please share the story about the time you wrestled a bear on live TV? Well, when I was mayor, you know, every morning we have, you know, I meet with my staff and scheduler and we go over, you know, what's coming up that day and what mail we got. And there was a request three months in the future, I think, three, four months in the future, that if I would wrestle a bear in the convention center for every minute that I stayed in the ring, we'd get something like, I don't remember the exact amount, $10,000 for the charity. So I said, ah, yeah, that, you know, I'm cocky. I'm young. I said, yeah, why not? So I just said, yes, but that was four months in advance. I never thought about it again. Well, the morning of the event at the morning meeting, the scheduler, she says to me, I think her name was Cookie. She says to me, Jay, you know, you're wrestling a bear tonight at six o'clock. And this was 1978. And it was the first time, in, in, at least in Cincinnati, where you could have live reports from the location. So we had these vans and on top of the van was a big satellite. And at six o'clock, the news anchor would go to the reporter at a live location. So me, rest, the mayor wrestling the bear was going to be televised before the whole city. <laughs> now, as the afternoon wears on, I'm getting scared. I said, this is stupid. The bear's name was Victor. He was 550 <laughs> pounds. What am I doing? Now, in fairness, he was muzzled. So I know it wasn't going to bite me. But he's got big paws. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the, the place is packed. I walk into it. You know, if you're the mayor, you can't cry. You, you can't say, I don't want to do it. So I'm in the ring. In too deep now. <laughs> yes. The bell hits. I'm dancing around with the bear. Oh, and the, the trainer of the bear said, look, just don't touch him on the nose. Otherwise, he'll just dance around with you. You know, he's not going to hurt you. So for the first round. Yeah, crowd's cheering. I'm dancing around. You know, I move on him. Once in a while, he grabs me and nothing bad doesn't throw me to the ground. So it's okay. Second round, same thing. Third round, now I'm getting cocky. <laughs> so I'm out there and I figure, oh, I'll touch him on the nose. What's he going to do? Boom. My glasses go flying. I am horizontal in the air. I mean, the, the pictures and they had the film of it. I think YouTube still has it, but I'm literally in the air, midair, horizontal with the ground. Then he pounces on me and it really hurt. But as I said, as a mayor, you can't cry, but I want him to get off me. And of course the crowd's laughing. This is funny. This is great. And uh, that was the last time I fought the bear. <laughs> Where is Victor now? I don't know. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah. So, um, so as you said, you working as a nightly news anchor um, on the NBC News affiliate station in Cincinnati, and it was in 1991 as you were assigned, as you called it, to host a new talk show, which I'm sure you never imagined at the time it would run for 
27 years and some 5,000 episodes in 40 countries. But it didn't start off as the same kind of show we would all come to know it as, did it? Uh, No. The first year we did the show, we did it in Cincinnati. And it was a more serious show. It was political, like Jesse Jackson on Oliver North. I mean, he was well known back then. So uh, it was more political. It was a traditional talk show. And uh, we, the first day we were on the air, we were in five markets, five cities, ranging from New York, Cincinnati, Cleveland, L.A., and then a small town in the south, Macon, Georgia, because they wanted to see how it would do in various size markets. And it did very well. And uh, by two or three months in, we were picked up in 19 other markets. Then... NBC signed us to, I think, a five-year deal. But they said I would have to do it out of one of their own stations. They'd have to own it. can't just be an affiliate. So the choices I had were L.A., Chicago, or New York. But I was still doing the news. i do the show in the morning, and then i did the news at 5, 36, and 11. So the only way I could get back in time to do the news would be Chicago because Chicago was closer than New York and L.A. And that's why the the second year the show moved to Chicago and I would get up in the morning, fly to Chicago, tape the talk show, and then the afternoon fly back to Cincinnati so I could do the news at 5, 36, and 11. And I did that for about a year and a half and that really got exhausting and I, I just couldn't do it anymore. So I had done the news for 10 years. I said, okay, I'll, I'll devote my energies to the show. And that's how that happened. And how the show became crazy. Well, the first time there ever was a fight, we had no security because whoever thought there'd be a fight on the talk show. But we did one on the Ku Klux Klan. And people from the audience charged the stage and the Klansmen. There was a riot, basically. There was literally a riot, people throwing chairs for 15 minutes. We didn't know what to do. We were just a bunch of producers. And, uh, you know, the police were called and finally the fight was broken up. I assumed that that was the end of it. You know, no more Jerry Springer show. But instead, their response was from now on, we would have security. And the next day, Steve, Steve Wilkos, who has his own show now and was my security guy for years, He was the head of security, and so we had security. The show went crazy because Ricky Lake, um, I don't know if you had her show. Yeah, we had to, yeah. Okay. Ricky Lake was really the first talk show to go after young people. What I mean by young people is high school and college-age kids. And there were 20 other shows all going after Oprah's audience. So, you know, we'd be one out of 20 getting a little piece of the pie. I thought it made more economic sense. Why don't we go after the kids? And then we just have to share with one person and we get a much larger audience. So literally in one day, uh, the executive producer at the time, uh, Richard Dominic and I, we were walking down Michigan Avenue and we said, from now on, let's just have young people in the audience, young guests and young topics. Well, as you know, young people are much more open about their lives. You know, they're much wilder, crazier, much less, oh, I can't say that. You know, as I said, they're much more open. So the show started going young. And every once in a while, not 
nowhere near every day. Every once in a while, things got out of hand, fights break out, et cetera. But we had security. About a year later, Universal bought us. And when Universal bought us, they said, from now on, you can only do crazy. So if you called us with a warm, uplifting story, we had to send you to another show. We weren't allowed to air it. So we're only allowed to do the crazy stuff that got to be known as the Jerry Springer Show. And that's how that all came about. As you say, the, the show did shine a spotlight on the more outrageous or, or scandalous stories. And I'll, I'll mention just a few memorable show titles from the 90s, like They Stole My Husband's Eyes. I woke up in a morgue. Um, I cut off my manhood. I cut off my legs. The infamous I Married a Horse. Uh, I Slept with 251 Men in 10 Hours. Adult Babies. Did you really not know what was coming up on each show and you were just winging it every episode? Yes, but that's easier. In other words, I had nothing to do with who was a guest, what the subjects were, and I didn't want to know what the show was about because then my reaction would be fake. Hmm. In other words, I was the viewer at home. In all the craziness, I was always dressed in a suit. I never curse. You know, I never got involved in the fights. You know, I'm the viewer. I asked the question that you would ask sitting at home watching and then make a joke. So really, I was paid to tell jokes about what was going on. And it'd be much more spontaneous and real, as I said, because I'm not an actor, if I really didn't know, if I was surprised. And one of the shows you mentioned, you know, the infamous I Married My Horse, the backstory to that was, you know, again, I didn't know. All they do is give me the card that you see me carrying around, but all the card has on it are the names of the guests. So one, two, three, four. And let's say the guy's name was Bob. I honestly don't remember. So the show starts like every other. If you'll notice in every show, I start out by saying, so what's going on? So now the guy's sitting there and let's say his name was Bob. Bob's sitting in a chair on stage. I say, welcome, Bob. Uh, What's going on? And he sits there. He's about 45 years old, something like that. And he says, well, um, I'm having trouble with the neighbors. Uh, Why? They don't like my wife. Well, what's wrong with your wife? Nothing. She keeps to herself. She's quiet, never starts arguments. Well, this is kind of boring. So I look at the next guest. The next guest is Pixel. Well, let's meet your wife. Here's Pixel. Out comes this horse. (laughs) The crowd goes wild. But I have the reaction that any normal person I think would have. Oh, my gosh. His wife has fallen off the horse that for some reason she was going to take, ride the horse out there, you know? So I say, stop. And then the executive producer is yelling at me at the side. No, no, that's his wife. <laughs> and, and then of course, uh, the audience just went crazy. And the, the end of the story is, you know, we did a follow-up. The horse, uh, Pixel left him. Ugh. But it was, yeah, yeah, I know. But it was really weird. Of course it was weird, but <laughs> Bob is sitting in the chair and every time I was standing between Bob and Pixel, Pixel would nudge me out of the way. Pixel wanted to see Bob's face all the time. Never go between a woman and a man. <laughs> yes, it was love. It was love. 
Um, the show did attract a lot of criticism, whether it was because of all the fighting that happened on stage or the notion that the show was exploiting guests for entertainment or fakery claims. Sure. And you defended the show for decades. And in my previous life, I spent 15 years working for BBC News, where I constantly had to defend my organisation from critics. And <laughs> not going to lie, yeah. it could get exhausting yeah. sometimes. It must get tiring for you too. Oh, well, I mean, that was that was part of the whole thing, truthfully. The controversy sent the show to the top. That's what people were talking about. They were talking about our show. I've always said the show was stupid. You know, and they asked me, would you watch it? And I said, no, but I'm, at the time, I was 60 years old. And it's not aimed at 60-year-old men. If I was in college, would I watch it? Of course I would. I would have been laughing with all the other guys and, you know. But I, I always thought the criticism was basically elitist because people would always say, that these people, they would use horrible words like, why do you have trash on the show and stuff like that? Like human beings are trash. Hitler was trash. Poor people are not trash. And if the very same subject matter, the exact same subject matter that was on our show, celebrities go on late night television, sit on the couch, sell their books about, you know, who they slept with, the drugs they used, the problems they had. And we buy their books, we cheer their movies, we go to their concerts. The more trouble they're in, the, the better. In other words, because they're rich, famous, and beautiful. If you're that combination, no one ever calls them trash. So the argument wasn't with the subject matter. You know, you had guests on the show that cheated on their spouse or cheated on their boyfriend. Well, welcome to Hollywood. But that's okay. We want to read about the next thing and whose side are we going to take and all of that. So it was clearly elitist and we haven't lost that, sadly, in America. You know, when people ask me to compare, at least my view of comparing Britain with, uh, with America, the so-called upper class in Britain and wealthy people in America are closer than either group is with the poor people in their country or with the lower income people. In other words, the only difference between wealthy Brits and wealthy Americans is the accent. And the only difference between lower income Americans and lower income Brits is the accent. It's still working class, it's still having a beer after work. You know, it's still the same issues. It's, it's really a class distinction which is nothing to be proud of in either country. Is the difference, though, that I, I guess the argument that people that are on talk shows maybe aren't fully aware, of, celebrities may go on talk shows and talk about it, but everyday people may not be fully aware of the implications of what they're doing, the consequences after, I guess, there's, you know, there's the duty of care argument comes up now um, a lot. There's There was a famous case in the UK uh, equivalent to your show where a guest sadly took his own life after appearing on the show. Um, I know there was a similar case on your show. But, but what I found interesting on your show is that guests were given a list of 21 possible scenarios that may occur if they appear on the show. And if they don't agree to experiencing any of them, they don't appear on the show. So, so nothing's a surprise, really, if That's they right. go on your show. Right. They, they agree to every possible surprise that may happen. So they agree to that. So that that never becomes an issue. But the other point is kind of elitist in itself. 
In other words, we wealthy, well-educated, famous people or whatever, we know what's best. And these poor little people, you know, everybody knows when they're hurt. You don't have to have a Harvard Law degree or Oxford degree to know when you're hurt, to know when you're being ripped off, to know when things aren't fair. You know that early on in life. And secondly, you can't be on our show unless you desperately want to be on. We can't call anybody up and say, hey, you want to be on our show? What? (laughs) They'd hang up. The only people that get on our show are people that contact the show. And it's not like we're in the phone book. You have to watch the show to get the number. You have to watch the show and probably a ton of times to remember the number. And you call and you go through interviews. And when you get on the show, we don't even use your real name. So no one comes on the show because they're going to be famous. You use different names. And it may be what I've noticed, I didn't know ahead of time, but what I've noticed is that for many of the guests on our show, this is the only time in their life that anyone asks them what they're feeling and what they're thinking about and what their opinion is. They don't have a spouse who listens to them. They don't have a parent who listens to them. They don't have a kid who listens to them. At work, they're not the manager. No one ever listens to these people. So for one or two days in their lives, they're flown to, at the time, uh, either Chicago or Stamford, Connecticut, and they have a producer, somebody's caring about them, somebody's putting makeup on them, they're being put up in a hotel, they're being, you know, they're getting some... Sometimes they were given new teeth. Yes, yeah, yeah. The attention they get, because even in a show where you would think, oh, this poor guy, he really, you know, he got the bad end of the stick on this one, you know, he cheated and he got caught, etc. But when the show's over, they're all alike. Oh, Jerry, can we come back? Can we take, can we have a picture? Can we make a selfie? Could you hold my kid while we take a picture? We can't wait till we come back. Please have us back. It's like, this is significant to them. And we take it for granted because most of us, every day in our lives, people are asking our opinion. You came to work today and someone had some questions for you. You have some opinion you want to express to the people you work with. Hey, let's do this. Let's do that you're kind of a little bit in charge of your life. Mm. These people are not in charge of their life. And if they have a moment, and again, it's not to be famous. They know they're not going to be famous because they're not using their names. It's cool. They liked it. But so despite all the criticism, the show was massive with some 25 million US viewers alone at its peak. And you became a national treasure and icon. You appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone. You were on The Simpsons. You even had your own line of merch and became a hero for the working class, a man of the people. And of course, everyone would chant your name both in the studio and everywhere you went. But I love that after every show, you would wait behind and meet every audience member. Yeah, um, that probably comes from my political days. People are coming out to see you, you know, be polite. If they were coming to your house, you'd stand at the doorway as they're leaving, say, hey, thanks for coming. I mean, that's just good manners, you know. Okay, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Hello, 
Genevieve here just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener, thank you for hitting that play button again. And if this is your first time, welcome. You have four whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on. So if you haven't already, please do follow and subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show, stick around at the end to find out how. Now, back to the Latin Zone. So as the show only ended five years ago, I'm going to do this a little differently than usual. And also because for us here in England, we haven't seen the show on general TV for some 20 years and as is the way out of sight, out of mind. So this is going to be more life after that thing I did became massive to bring everyone up to date. So uh, we've already mentioned The Simpsons, but you also appeared in a host of TV shows in the 90s as yourself. Married with Children, Roseanne, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, even The X-Files, not to mention, of course, your appearance in Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shag Me, as well as your own film, Ringmaster. How did it feel at the time to be such an ingrained part of popular culture and what effect did that have on you and your family? Um, there were only two times, really, that it dawned on me that, I mean, I just always viewed this as a job, just as I always took the criticism of the show with a grain of salt, you know, I mean, I never, never went home at night and, oh, but I never went home at night thinking, oh man, they love me. Jerry, Jerry, they love me. That was my job. It ju I just happened to do a job in front of a lot of people. The first time I thought, gee, this is bigger than I thought, is when we beat Oprah in the ratings. And the second was when I was on the cover of Rolling Stone, because I grew up with Rolling Stone. And, uh, you know, my daughter saw that, my family saw that, and, you know, my friends saw that. But I have the same friends I've had for 50 years. I don't live in Hollywood. I don't know celebrities. I mean, I may meet them at a, you know, a convention or a, a, a fundraising dinner or something like that. But I don't have any known people on my speed dial. <laughs> and so... Not even Bob Dylan after you gave him the keys to the city. <laughs> well, I was excited about meeting Bob Dylan. But what was neat about meeting Bob Dylan is we were backstage. Honestly, we were like alone for 15 minutes at least. And he was, we're about the same age, and he was fascinated what it was like to be a mayor. I mean, he was asking most of the questions. <laughs> so it was like, after three or four minutes, he's not Bob Dylan anymore, he's just a regular guy. He's Howard Zimmerman, I think that's his name. Um, I mean, I know I'm well known, but it has nothing to do with who I am. If your family loves you, if the people who know you love you and respect you, that counts. But everything else is, it's wonderful. It's complimentary. I appreciate it. But it's, they know this persona, Jerry Springer. Now, my wife says to me, instead of chanting Jerry, 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 they should start chanting your address so you know how to get home. Because <laughs> I'm losing my memory. But, uh, and I guess if you talk to people who know me, it, it's... I'm not into any of that. And that doesn't make me better than anyone else. It's just that it's not that exciting because I know, I'll tell you, okay, here's what I think may be an answer if I separate myself from the issue. I became, quote, famous. Well, first, as a grown-up, I've always been well-known. I was a mayor in my 30s. Mm. I was a councilman and a candidate for Congress. Well, I was on city council in my 20s. I was a mayor in the 30s. I was the news anchor of the town. And so in the community where I lived, 
I was virtually well known from day one of being an adult. So that wasn't new. Plus, by having a career before I got into show business, I was already an adult. I mean, a, you know, I had life experience. Yeah. I was already in my 40s when the Jerry Springer show started, almost 50. So when you reach that age, you realize everything is kind of make-believe in showbiz. You're not as blinded by the fame as young person would be. Exactly. And you see this with athletes because athletes become famous in their 20s, young Hollywood stars in their 20s. And it's tough to handle because they start believing what is written about them. So if you already have some sense of maturity, that really helps to put it in perspective. And I guess you know you've truly made it when you inspire an opera and it's named after you. Jerry Springer, the opera opened here in the West End in 2003. It won three Olivier Awards, which are the equivalent of, of the Tonys here, including Best New Musical, played in New York, where none other than Harvey Keitel played you. Yeah. Uh, and of course, it wouldn't be Jerry Springer without a bit of controversy. And there were quite a few Christian protests at the time who wanted it cancelled for being blasphemous and complained when the BBC aired it over here. Oh my gosh, they had... I understand 25,000 complaining phone calls at the BBC. That's what they told me. Yeah, there was Parliament talked the government. Parliament talked about it a few times. But yeah. what was your perspective on it from the other side of the pond? Well, I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Just your name. Yeah, they did it. And they didn't need my permission. I never got a penny for it. These people in England wrote an opera. And I, since I'm a public person... I can't say you can't do it. So they just did it. And then when it became a hit, and I think it first opened in the Fringe Festival. Edinburgh. Edinburgh. And then they brought it to London, to the West End. And they invited me there to see it because I had no idea what people were talking about. And I saw it and it was uncomfortable to be sitting in the audience when there's an opera about you. <laughs> I mean, first of all, who do I share the experience with? There are no people alive who have an opera. I can't talk to Figaro. You know, it's just not going to happen. And you're sitting there and you realize everyone's looking at you when something goes on on stage. So it was, very, it was uncomfortable. But when it was over, they called me up on stage and suddenly there's hushed, you know, they applauded and then there was hushed silence. And I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I walked off. <laughs> the language was filthy. Yeah. I mean, just way over the top. And that's why I was surprised it made it on Broadway because Broadway is kind of a, a hoity-toity crowd mostly. And then it traveled the country. So it was very well done, but it was sacrilegious. And I could see if you're a devout Christian, that's pretty insulting. I was in the airport one day and a woman came up to me and <laughs> complained. And I said, I should be the one complaining. They did it about me. Why are you yelling at me? I'm the victim. And she said, well, yeah. You, um, you competed in Dancing with the Stars in 2006. And I guess you were cast as sort of the comedy relief, but America loved you and you made it through to the final five. And you said you originally did the show so that you could dance a waltz with your daughter, Katie, on her wedding day. Yeah. How did that go on the big day? Did you remember the steps? Uh, well, what happened, I remembered the steps, but Katie looked up at me and says, because she's wearing this big wedding gown, and she says, Dad, they can't see our feet. 
So I said, you're right. This was all for naught. At least you made the effort. Yeah. But when she came to Hollywood the night we did the waltz, and then she came out of the audience, that was my single happiest moment in television. I mean, that was just, it was magical. So that's, that's my best memory. And it was all worth it because of that. And then in 2009, you treaded the boards over here in the West End as Billy Flynn in the musical Chicago. Um, and other than your role as Alexander the Lesser in your college musical, How Much Can a Grecian Earn? Oh, you, hadn't, <laughs> you hadn't sung professionally before. Is it true no one asked you if you could sing before you were offered the role? Um, in terms of timing, yes. But I don't know if that was a final offer. They wanted me to come would you come to London and, you know, I was offered the role. A contract wasn't signed, but I went there and I went up into this room with, uh, you see in all the movies, you know, the wooden floor and in the corner, there's a, a stand-up piano. <laughs> and it was just me in that room. And uh, they had me sing. Yeah, I could sing a song or two that I knew. Yeah, I could sing on key, et cetera, so not a great voice, but I could sing on key. Plus, Billy Flynn's songs are, the three of them, are limited in terms of range. So it isn't really, you know, you didn't have to be an opera star to play Billy Flynn. And uh, I can tell you two things, observations. Number one, it was singularly the scariest thing I ever had to do in showbiz. And it was every night. And the second thing I noticed is these were the most talented people I've ever been around. I mean... The stamina. Oh, the dancers. Just amazing. There's them, and then there's the rest of us. But the fear, particularly if you've seen Chicago, Billy Flynn comes in about 15 minutes into the play. And his entrance, the whole stage goes black. There's this huge staircase in the middle. And then you hear the chorus going... Billy, Billy, Billy. And at the top of the staircase, remember, it's pitch black. All of a sudden, the spotlight right in my eyes. And then I got it. I forget the line thing was, is everybody here? Is everybody ready? Hit it. And then I have to sing and dance down the steps. I was so frightened. Falling. Oh my gosh. I was nervous. I was going to fall down the steps. I was going to forget the words. Every night, the same fear. Now, once out there and you're into the rhythm of it, you know, then I enjoyed it. But that was the, uh, the toughest entertainment um, job I've ever had. I mean, that was the respect I have of the people. And then we toured here. In, well, we did Broadway and then we toured here in the States. You know, it was a great experience, but it's for younger people. <laughs> a poignant thing you did was an episode of the BBC genealogy show, Who Do You Think You Are?, which was an emotional experience for you. And I have to say, for me, watching too, as you traced your family's experience in Nazi Germany, which you talked about at the start of this, almost all of whom were exterminated in camps. But talk about the power of television, both in terms of if the show didn't exist, you probably wouldn't have filled the gaps in your family history, but also telling your family story makes it more real and it isn't just text or pictures in, in history books. Could you talk a bit about how participating in the show affected you? 
Well, it affected my sister and I because we were taken, you know, the idea of the show is for 10 days, they take you around the world after they have spent nine months researching your family's history. And whenever there was a significant moment in your family's history, they go to that location. So sadly, in our story, we wound up going to concentration camps uh, initially. And the toughest one was, you know, my mom's mom was exterminated in Helmo. And Helmo was an extermination camp where you were only there for a night and a day. And you were taken there. First, they were taken from their homes in Berlin. They were put in a ghetto in Poland. And uh, Wuj, it was called. And there in Wuj, they were, and this is all information we knew nothing about. And the sad, among the many sad parts about it, is mom and dad never knew any of this. In other words, they knew their parents had been taken, but it's not like when you're taken to a camp, you send a postcard. Can you imagine that? Your parents are taken when you're just 30-something and you have no idea where they are or what happened to them. Nothing. And they lived the whole rest of their lives never knowing what happened. And here, Evelyn and I, we get to find all the details. And uh, this Camp Helmo, for six months, they were in, the, uh, in this town of Woods, And 12 people were put into this three-room apartment. And the apartment had no running water, no heat, no electricity, no furniture. They slept on wooden floors. If you had to go to the bathroom, you went out on the street or in the backyard. And uh, they lived like that for six months. Most of the people then, or a good portion of the people died there. My grandmother was then on a certain day, which they, the Germans have the records. So you know exactly what day and what the number on the car was. They were put on a train car. You know, you, you've seen this in movies, the cattle cars, stuffed onto the train. And they were told they were gonna be taken to this place where they're gonna get medical treatment and it's a better life. And that's what Helmo was. It was this mansion out in the wilderness and all the soldiers there were dressed in white doctor's outfits with a stethoscope, the whole bit. And they were taken inside and then asked to take off their clothing, put it in a basket and they were led down a hallway and the hallway opened up into the back of a van and they, stuffed 60 people at a time, naked people at a time, into the back of a van, shut the van, turned on the gas, and in the 15 minutes that it took to take the van to this field where they were all dumped in a, a ditch, they all died, of course. That, that's how it ended. And when you see it, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. But what it teaches you, and remember, all these people, they were just killed not because of anything they did. It's just because of what they were. They happened to be Jewish. That's the only reason they were so massacred and killed and wiped out. And uh, that becomes the fundamental principle of your life. That is why, at least for me, why I'm this diehard liberal. You know, you never, ever, Ever. You can judge people based on what they do, but you never, ever, 
judge a person based on what they are. So if someone is black, if someone is Muslim, if someone is Catholic or Jewish or whatever, no judgment. They're a nice person. Let's help them. And that, that defines my philosophy in life, my politics. It also makes it very difficult for me to get really upset with something, except that the Yankees lose. <laughs> I get upset there because I realize, what are people complaining about? You know, I mean, I'm sorry. It's, mm. it's hard for me to think that this is a big issue. On a slightly more upbeat note. Um, hey, how about them Yanks? <laughs> I'm, um, I'm amazed that you managed to squeeze so much in at the same time as taping the Jerry Springer show. I mean, as well as everything that we've just talked about, you hosted America's Got Talent for two seasons. You had a dating show, Baggage, for five years. You hosted Miss World twice and WWE Raw. You had a radio show and a podcast for the past eight years. And over here, you also had your own talk show and a late night show, as well as guest hosting a number of others. Not to mention all the political rallies and work you do. Do you even go home? Uh, yes. Well, I'll tell you, since COVID, you know, when I walked in the door, Mickey said, you know, we've been married, well, a couple of months, it'll be 50 years. When I walked in the door, Mickey said, so that's who you are. <laughs> yeah, I, I obviously traveled a lot. But, you know, when weekends came, for example, or when there were days we weren't taping, I was home. I mean... I have two very close friends, friends for 50 years. And then I have my family. And honestly, that's my recreation. That's how I spend all my time. I'm friendly with lots of people, but I can't be, oh yeah, I'll go with you this week. And oh yeah, let's go to the game there. And let's go to this. Uh, Cause then you're never home. So if it's not work related, then I'm with family. So the truth is we have an awful lot of time together. Mm. You um, you originally thought you'd make your living as a lawyer, as you said, but you became a TV personality instead. So it's funny that things came full circle that after the Jerry Springer show ended in 2018, you got to flex your legal muscles straight after on Judge Jerry, uh, where you presided over real legal challenges in small claims court. But did you need any other formal training or qualification for your decisions to be legally binding? Because I know here in the UK, it's, it's a district judge that presides over small claims courts and they have to be officially yeah. appointed by the official judicial review people. Well, I, I had a day of review, but you know, when you're already a lawyer, in fact, since judges are elected, you could even be a, elected a judge if you're not a lawyer. But also anyone who appeared before us agrees ahead of time in a signed document that whatever decision I make is legally binding. Okay. So if they then go to the court of common pleas, they can't say, oh, that was just a TV judge. No. So was I a real judge? Yeah, because whatever decision I made, they had to live with and there were consequences. So I took it very seriously. I loved that job, you know, but we were hit by COVID and then all of a sudden you, you can't really have a a live audience and part of my energy comes from that live audience. And, uh, but we did it for three years and I really enjoyed it, but you know, I'm retired now. It's, you know, it's 79. It's, 
it's time. Yeah. So you said that you were going to retire and wind down when Judge Jerry ended, but it didn't really last very long because only a few months ago we saw you on The Masked Singer as The Beatle. And last month you started a folk music show on a radio station in Cincinnati. So it's it's like a, a slow wind down into retirement. Yeah. It, it, well, that's a good point. Um, the uh, Masked Singer, you know, that's like a one-time show. So that's you know, that's not changing my schedule in life or whatever I want to do. So that that just seemed fun. Um, it was an easy thing to say yes to, you know. Mm-hmm. So I sing for one day. What's it? Oh, I knew I wouldn't last more than one show. See, in every show, they have three acts. Mm-hmm. Two of them are really professional acts. I mean, they make their living doing singing or whatever, dancing, whatever it is. I mean, that's, they're all professionals. And then there's always one thrown in for comedy relief (laughs) because they're well-known. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't tell you, you know, they say, no, no, no. If you do, well, it's the day of the show. We had a, a little rehearsal beforehand. And the way the show works is that if you pass the first round, then you get to sing another song. And I said, Hey, wait a second. How come you haven't rehearsed me on a second song. <laughs> and everyone started to laugh. Whoa, whoa. What do, you, what do you mean? What if the judges say, yeah, we're going with him? And what the judges said, they were as nice as could be, you know, said flattering things. But, you know, I guess they're all in on how it's done. But, but it's fair. I mean, the people that, that win really are the best. That wasn't always the case with Dancing with the Stars. Mm. Sometimes, at least early on, the people that lasted longer were the personalities. Yeah. And uh, I remember saying to one of the producers, just in a casual conversation, I said, you know, it's, it's kind of fun going week to week, but this is a dancing show. You don't want to lose it. If it becomes clear that all you have to do to get on this show is just be funny and, you know, make up stories, you're going to lose what the show is about. And in later years, it's clearly they have more professional dancers. Mm-hmm. We had a we had a famous case here on our Dancing with the Stars equivalent, Strictly Come Dancing. There was a, a political correspondent, John Sargent, who was dancing on the show. He was terrible. He was very, very bad. But people loved that he was having a go and was the comedy relief. And they kept voting him through every week. Mm. And it got to the point where good dancers were being voted out in place of him. And he ended up actually resigning from the show. He had like a press conference and he said, I, I can't do this anymore. This is ridiculous. And he said, he stepped down. It was very big news at the time, especially because oh, yeah. people had voted um, over here at the time when you voted uh, the money that you paid to vote went to charity yeah. and people were like, well, I want my money back because I voted for oh. him and they had to pull it. It was a very big oh thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise I think he made it, he, he made an excellent point. It changes the whole character of the show. If, 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 if that goes on. Yeah. You, um, you've always said that you never watched the Jerry Springer show. Now that you've mostly retired, do you think you might start watching them now? Well, I've, I've seen clips of it, but I can honestly say, I have never, ever watched the whole episode. <laughs> never, never. Now, in the beginning, that was clearly on purpose because I didn't want to be self-conscious. I know I have gestures that, you know, I'm holding the mic. I, I touch my face a lot. I, you know, the way I talk and whatever. And if I start critiquing that, then, you know, it's going to be stilted. I, I just get up there, you know, 
this is who I am. And, and I'm at the show, so it's not like, what am I watching it for? I know, you know, I've seen it. <laughs> so I don't find that strange. In fact, it would be just the opposite. You know, I'd, I'd be pretty much in love with myself if I just sat at home and watched, oh, gee, there I am. Wow, <laughs> I'm looking good, man. <laughs> if one of my friends walked in and saw me watching myself, in fact, if Mickey walked in and saw me watching myself, he says, Teasel, Jer, what's going on? You know, nah, nah, it's, I, I don't do it. Just before we finish, last question. Um, I know you're a big Elvis fan and you do a mean Elvis impersonation, but would you mind sharing the rather unfortunate incident you had while doing a commentary on the King's birthday? Oh, this was January 8th, 1983 which is Elvis's birthday. And I know it was 1983 because I had just started doing the news. And when I first started doing the news, I was just doing every newscast a commentary. And since that was Elvis's birthday, I thought, well, how about a nice commentary about him? Now, back then, anchors, you know, look straight at the camera, but when they look straight into the lens, and it's not only back then, it's now too, you don't see just the lens. What you see is your script being scrolled down uh, as you're talking. Teleprompter. Yeah, the teleprompter. Now it's all computerized. But back then, what you had in the back of the studio was a conveyor belt like you see in a grocery store. And facing down on the conveyor belt is a camera. So you type out your script, you know, various pages, a number of pages. And so an intern would take that page, put it on the conveyor belt, and your script would sail by and scroll down. And so I would see my words that I wrote. Well, on this particular night, she got the pages out of order and then panicked and put in another page and it was upside down. <laughs> well, it's one thing if there's no script, there's nothing on the screen, but you're just talking to a lens and then you're just talking because you're thinking about what you're saying like you do in a normal conversation. But if you're reading a script and suddenly in mid-sentence it goes away, you're saying, oh my God, what was the next word? What did I? And I froze. I mumbled stuff. And they have a video of this still. It was like, you know, when Elvis was young, he, he, he was young. And people really like young people. Elvis, is, it was, <laughs> it should have been the end of my television career. It was a disaster. And finally, after what seemed like, well, was at least 30 seconds of mumbling. And on the sides, you could hear the co-anchor, the weather guy, and the sports guy laughing hysterically. And our weather guy, uh, Pat Berry, rest in peace, you know, he was going, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I mean, he was even laughing loud, guffawing. And finally, I just stopped in the middle and I turned to Norma, who was also laughing. I said, Norma? And suddenly the camera goes to her and she doesn't know. Oh, it was brutal. It was one of those, uh, you know, every once in a while they have those tapes of uh, blunders, goofer, uh, um Bloopers. Bloopers. Uh, yeah, and it was a blooper show. It made them all. Yeah. What happened to the intern? Was she sacked? <laughs> no, she probably runs the station now. <laughs> you know, I, I felt so badly for her. I mean, can you imagine? That can't happen anymore. Now it's all computerized. Unless it's like um, that scene in Anchorman where somebody just put a question mark at the end and uh, Will Ferrell says, I'm Ron Burgundy. 
It's like, who put a question mark oh, yeah, in, yeah. in the script? That's right. Oh, no. That was a great scene. Oh, Jerry, it's been a joy to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time. You are so nice. Thanks for having me. Enjoy your semi-retirement. <laughs> I certainly will. I'd love to be back to talk to you again sometime. And remember always, take care of yourself and each other. Massive thanks again to the lovely Jerry for joining me and being so generous with his time. If you'd like a Jerry Springer show fix, admit it, you know you want to, there's a whole library of clips on the Jerry Springer TV YouTube channel. And if you're in the US, you can watch reruns every weekday. Just go to jerryspringertv.com to find your local TV listings. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show, visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. It's always nice to get a five-star review and also people are more likely to have a listen if someone else says it's worth it. So do that if you fancy. And please follow on social media and share the pod so others can discover and listen too. Just search for Celebrity Catch-Up and you'll find me. Until next time, thanks for listening. Listening.